0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, head of Thaw Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on August 2nd, 2023. Now, for some situational context, I want to remind our listeners that we are recording this episode... A week after the federal reserve and other major central banks released their latest monetary policy decisions and a couple of days before the july jobs report is released here in the u.s so it's an interesting time in the markets because recent economic data have shown some surprising strength and markets have adjusted to reflect the increase in the range of possible economic outcomes as our own ann walsh wrote in her recent commentary talk of Goldilocks has taken hold in the markets, and she reminds us that periods like this don't last. You can find Anne's new commentary on our website at GuggenheimInvestments.com. And here to provide an update on our economic and market outlook are Matt Bush, Guggenheim Investments U.S. economist, and Evan Serdensky, a portfolio manager on our total return team. Welcome back, Matt and Evan, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: Great to be with you, Jay. Thanks, Jay.
0: Now, Matt, uh, let's start off uh, with a little update on last week's FOMC decision. What did they decide and what you heard in the press conference afterwards? And why did they hike at all?
1: Well, the hike was really an acknowledgement that while there has been some good news on inflation, it's it's far from enough evidence for the Fed to be convinced that inflation is on its way back down to the 2% target. And going to sustainably stay there um so i think the hike was pretty widely expected but i thought some of the comments from chair powell at the press conference were more interesting and really the word i would use to characterize his comments would be optimistic powell really clearly stated that his base case for the economy is a soft landing and he noted that the fed staff uh, after having a recession in their forecast for the last several months no longer sees a recession so Powell did note the, the resilience of economic growth and acknowledge that it could lead to higher inflation. But he basically said that's not a worry for the time being. And he had a similarly relaxed attitude toward financial conditions, which despite Fed hikes are basically at the same level they were at a year ago. So even though the Fed has been hiking, you know, broader financial conditions uh, in terms of stock prices, credit spreads, longer term interest rates, and you know, in aggregate have really gone nowhere. And he was asked if this easing of financial conditions was a concern. And his message was that financial conditions are getting looser, but over time, they'll get to where they need to go and the Fed isn't going to explicitly react to the easing. So this is a less aggressive tone than we heard earlier in the year when the Fed was essentially trying to create a recession and trying to tighten financial conditions. And this was less aggressive than I expected heading into the meeting. Uh, And so that optimistic tone Uh, really helped fuel market hopes of a soft landing for the economy.
0: So just to follow up, Matt, uh, if indeed this is optimistic, or let's even call it dovish, uh, what are the odds of a Fed hike in September? And what would the Fed need to see in order to hike again, or conversely, to pause in September?
1: Well, the market's pricing in less than a 20% chance of a September hike. I think that number should be above 50%. While Powell could afford to be somewhat complacent about rebounding economic activity and easier financial conditions at this meeting, uh, we think another eight weeks of these conditions could make the Fed more nervous about the inflationary implications of rebounding growth and easy financial conditions, uh, especially if we continue to see commodity prices continue to rise. Uh, So in our view, uh, a September hike uh, looks like a fairly good probability. You know, what would it take for the Fed to take rate hikes off the table? I think that's very unlikely. Uh, They're going to want to at least keep the option open uh, because they keep citing the experience of the last few years where they thought inflation was turning lower only for it to turn up again. So they don't want to get fooled like that again. So even if they don't hike in September, they'll try to keep the door open at future meetings.
0: Evan, how's the market been reacting to the Fed decision? And what are the portfolio implications of Fed policy going forward?
2: Well, in a word, the market's been resilient, and it's, it's really been a tale of two markets. So last year, we saw significant drawdowns in risk assets as the Fed was initiating their hiking cycle. Uh, but this was also at a time when inflation was still accelerating, um, and you also had other exogenous effects like the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict starting. This year, outside of uh, the month of March, has mostly been a period of recovery, especially very recently. Uh, and it's justifiable given the data has been better than expectations, um, and also because our research shows that pausing phases of hiking cycles generally lead to strong risk asset performance, also uh, strong fixed income performance, but, but especially uh, strong risk assets. So it's not unusual. That tends to wane at the end of the pausing cycle as you uh, inevitably head towards a, a slowdown. Now, notably, parts of the fixed income market are still pretty dislocated after the effects of last year. We think that's really interesting. As an analogy, within the equity market, large cap stock uh, prices have rallied significantly while a lot of the S&P has still lagged. That's very similar to what's going on in the fixed income universe where indices have rallied, but we're seeing a lot of value in non-index credit segments that, um, that have been uh, lagging the, the broader rally. Um, We think it's really important to be conscious of the lagged effects of the Fed's policies, the cumulative tightening, and quantitative tightening uh, especially. The average lags tend to vary. There's a variety of ways you can measure it. It can be off of the starting point of uh, Fed hikes. It can be when the curve's inverted, et cetera. It tends to go on a 12- to 18-month basis when you start to really see the effects flow through to the real economy, and we're right in kind of that range now. And admittedly, we're starting from a very accommodative stance, so, so you know it could potentially take longer this cycle. But it's important to remember that quantitative tightening is going on in the background, and we have very limited precedent to go off of for analyzing the effects here. But I would think about it sort of similar to uh, high, high blood pressure; it's potentially a silent killer um, where you don't see the effects until it kind of um, you know rears its ugly head. Um, and financial conditions we think are tighter than than are implied by the most common indices that people refer to. And we're seeing it in new credit creation, especially, which is very limited. So it's going to be tougher for issuers to roll out their debt in the future. So we're expecting additional stress. We're already seeing some, but we think it'll pick up. And what are the portfolio implications? So we're uh, approaching risk in a very measured way. We're overweighting higher quality segments. We're underweighting lower quality Uh, And we're building in more liquid defensive allocations because the opportunity cost is relatively limited right now, especially in the front end of the curve with how high general yield levels are right now. Um, And as always, we're on the lookout for opportunities to play offense. And when you get disjointed markets, that's generally a good time to to play offense.
0: But Matt, do you agree with Evan when he talks about the long and variable lags of monetary policy? And what is your view about a soft landing, and how does this play into your view on recession probability and timing?
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree with Evan. Um, you know, the recent economic data has shown surprising resiliency. We just got second quarter GDP data coming in better than expected. It showed 2.4% growth. And crucially, that growth is coming on the back of consumer spending holding up okay and an acceleration in business investment growth, which is getting a boost from some of these fiscal policy initiatives to onshore domestic production. Um, And so with this resilient growth, there's obviously growing hopes in the market for a soft landing for the economy. But I think it's important to understand what's been driving the resilient growth to know if it could continue. And so if we look over the last 12 months, we've seen headline CPI, which is what people actually feel in their pockets, fall by almost six percentage points, from 9% to 3%, with energy prices outright declining. So that disinflation has been a pretty important tailwind for consumer sentiment and consumer spending. We've also seen the fiscal deficit widen from 4% of GDP last August to 8.6% of GDP currently. That's a bigger fiscal easing than we've seen in most recessions, let alone during an economic expansion. We've seen consumers draw down their large cash balances which by some measures are now nearly back to 2019 levels and then finally we've seen companies cut hours aggressively and work down backlogs rather than resort to layoffs which has really helped support job growth and so looking forward none of these tailwinds are likely to continue at least not at the same magnitude that they have been inflation can keep falling but it's not going to fall by another six percentage points uh, fiscal policy is gonna become more of a headwind. Uh, the resumption of student loan payments is gonna be one example of that. And employers will have increased pressure for layoffs now that hours and backlogs are more normalized, especially with uh, profit margins now getting pressured. So you know, in my view, I think the story going forward is these tailwinds that have insulated the economy from the impact of higher interest rates and a slowdown in credit growth are going to start to fade and those tight credit conditions have, will have a bigger impact in the second half of the year. So in terms of recession timing, I think some of the resilient data may have pushed a recession into early 2024 rather than 2023. Uh, but in our view, that recession probability is still very high, whether it's you know a quarter or two later.
0: So you sound like a, a soft landing skeptic.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, a soft landing, we think, Will probably be in place for the next few months as inflation continues to come down and the economic data continues to look okay. Uh, but the problem is it's hard to stick that landing. Either the data continues to, to slow down and you go into a recession or the economy bounces, inflation risks start to build and the Fed has to do more, uh, thereby increasing risk to the economy. So it's just really hard to thread that needle and hit the soft landing on a sustained basis.
0: So, Evan, back to you for a second. What are you seeing in, in the credit cycle? Have you, are you seeing some pressure starting to build uh, in some issuers?
2: Yeah, we are. We're starting to see defaults pick up, uh, albeit off of ultra low levels from the last couple of years, but they've recovered back to a sort of average level around 3% trailing 12 month default rate. Um, our models indicate that. The defaults are likely to pick up from here, probably into the mid to high single digits next year. And this is because of a number of factors increased borrowing costs um, as interest rates have risen. Uh, there's been margin compression from labor, transport, input costs. Uh, and also, you know, looking forward, the Fed has clearly stated that they want to hold rates at a restrictive stance for as long as they can to really ensure that they've beaten inflation. And that means we're going to get. Inverted curves for longer. Um, And inverted curves are very good at uncovering concealed leverage in the system. Uh, And so, you know, we're at a high risk of potential financial accidents, sort of like we saw in March with the regional banks. We think that's elevated and could potentially lead to more stress and defaults. Any news
0: in the uh, corporate earnings that have been released so far for the second quarter?
2: Well, we're in the middle of it right now. um, But so far, it's been a fairly good quarter. Uh, There's been a high beat rate versus expectations, although it's worth level setting that expectations had been materially suppressed after last year. But on the positive side, certain sectors may be bottoming here. Uh, It's been sort of an uneven recovery uh, where housing and manufacturing, for example, are potentially at the bottom of their cycle, which is good and could serve to extend the overall credit cycle and economic cycle here, or Alternatively, make it more shallow, which is essentially our base case at this point for what a slowdown looks like.
0: So, uh, Matt, Evan was just talking about the corporate credit cycle. You mentioned a little bit about this before, but what are you seeing in the consumer credit cycle?
1: Yeah, I'd point out a couple of things. Um, I mentioned that households' cash buffers have largely been exhausted after they really built up big stockpiles in 2020 and 2021. Um, so with that cash gone, consumers are now becoming more reliant on credit as these cash buffers are are drawn down. The problem is that credit is both expensive in terms of high interest rates and hard to get in terms of tight lending standards. Uh, the Fed's Senior Loan Officer Survey was released a few days ago and showed that bank lending standards for consumer loans continue to tighten and remain at, at pretty tight levels. So that dynamic of scarce and expensive credit is going to be a headwind to consumer spending going forward, we think. The good news is that consumer balance sheets are overall in healthy shape. You know, one metric we look at is debt service to income, and that's still below any level seen from 1980 to 2019. And so, that dynamic of pretty healthy overall balance sheets uh, means you know we continue to see the recession that's coming as being pretty mild. It's not going to be a a big consumer deleveraging cycle like we saw post 2008. What do you think
0: the calculus is for the Fed to start cutting rates, not to look too far ahead, but I know that some in the market are already starting to price that in. What's the calculus and possible
1: drivers of timing? Yeah, the calculus is a high degree of confidence that inflation is not only heading back to the 2% target, not, not that it's already at 2%, but heading back but crucially going to stay there. And so that's going to require not just reported inflation looking better, it's going to require a labor market, which the Fed views as the primary driver of inflation dynamics, the labor market um, being less tight than it is now. And so to see cuts, we're going to need a higher unemployment rate, lower wage growth and inflation below 3%. We think those conditions will be in place early next year. We think unemployment is going to rise more than just a little bit and ultimately we'll get up to around 5% in a recession.
0: Great. So, thank you. Now, Evan, uh, you're a portfolio manager on our total return team, uh, and therefore you have a view on sectors across the fixed income spectrum. Um, Give us a rundown of what you're seeing on yields and spreads in the different sectors, Where are you finding relative value and what are you avoiding?
2: Sure. Well, yields are pretty elevated across the board, which is a nice change of pace from the last decade or so. When we look at spreads, overall, corporate spreads at the index level, at least, are in, call it the 50th to the 60th percentile over the long-term history, so a little bit wide of average which in our opinion is fair, uh, not terribly interesting, but given elevated cycle risks, that's, um, that's somewhere in the fair value zone. Um, but we are finding interesting opportunities in, in the primary market, for example, where volumes are much lower and capital is much more scarce now. And so there's been an ability to dictate terms and pricing um, in these markets to our advantage from the lender's perspective. For example, th- the high yield market is seeing secured issuance rates above 50% which on average is typically closer to around 20%. So borrowers are needing to pledge security that they typically wouldn't want to in order to get deals done in this environment. Besides that, uh, there's certain segments that I've alluded to that have really been left behind, especially within structured credit uh, like non-agency RMBS or uh, ABS subsectors that are collateralized by commercial collateral, Uh, like aircraft, for example, these asset classes are trading and call it the 70th to the 90th percentile on average. Uh, And one other sector that's worth a special call out is agency MBS right now that historically hasn't looked very attractive to us, but right now is at levels not seen since the financial crisis. Those are trading around the 95th percentile. Agency MBS has really been under pressure from very, very elevated interest rate volatility um, but then also forced selling implicitly from quantitative tightening, but uh, outright from the FDIC sales of the unwind of the Silicon Valley and Signature Bank balance sheets. Importantly, we're getting closer to the end of some of those technical pressures, which is a positive for potential total returns. But in the meantime, we really like the high carry that we can generate right now in a, what's a very high quality agency guaranteed market. Um, that's also very liquid uh, in terms of what we're avoiding Lower quality segments, floating rate borrowers that are under pressure right now, and perhaps not surprisingly, commercial real estate. We think there's definitely going to be opportunities in all of these segments over time, but we're really still just too early in the cycle for that.
0: Yields are among the highest we've seen in you know a decade or more, Um, but spreads are relatively kind of in the middle of the range. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between investing and the total returns contacts for a high yield or a spread outcome?
2: Yeah, so yields offer income, which is obviously one of the objectives for uh, for fixed income investors. but outside of just clipping your coupon as it's known, there's other ways to generate total return performance from price appreciation and that generally comes from spread compression. So when we're looking across the fixed income universe for total return opportunities, we're often focused on spread. Say where do we think uh, we can source sectors that have spread tightening potential? And what's really interesting, and we've talked about this on a few podcasts in the past, uh, in this environment is that you have a lot of discounted dollar price uh, fixed income instruments. That is pretty rare for the for the fixed income universe, and that alone gives you potential upside for takeouts, for calls, et cetera, in what can be a you know a call constrained market.
0: We've talked about various points as it relates to this uh, question, but uh, what is your view on the shape of the yield curve right now? What is it telling us? And what are your expectations for rates going forward? They've been inching up a little bit on the long end over the last couple of days.
1: Yeah, in the near term, I think some of these soft landing hopes could fuel some upside for the long end of the yield curve You know, as risk of stickier inflation is priced in and and some of the Fed rate cuts are, are priced out of 2024. But I think as it becomes clear that the soft landing is going to be short-lived and that we are heading for a recession, uh, we expect the next big move will be a bull steepening of the yield curve brought about by the Fed cutting rates. Uh, And again, we think those rate cuts start in early 2024, really pick up steam around the middle of the year. And that's where we see uh, some curve steepening.
2: In terms of the portfolios, we don't have a meaningful curve expression right now. Last year, we were broadly positioned for a curve flattener. Uh, which is expecting the front end to rise faster than the long end, which is, in fact, what happened. But as Matt outlined, uh, you know, as the Fed has entered a pausing cycle and is potentially at the end of the hiking cycle uh, and and entering a recession, cuts will likely serve to steepen the curve. And that's that's what history tends to show. Um, But we we're overall happy with being relatively neutral for now. But the next positioning is probably towards the steepener. Follow-up for you, Evan, on all of this,
0: given what we've been talking about, what is your team's general portfolio strategy going forward in terms of risk modulation, duration toggling,
2: and things like that? We're really focused on maintaining carry right now and prioritizing quality, and then also building an optionality to add credit risk at some point in the future. Uh, for now, we're seeing really attractive carry opportunities in many of these underfollowed segments that I've alluded towards. Um, and they really haven't participated in that beta-driven rally yet. Um, and we think we can construct pretty defensive portfolios right now that can still out-earn the benchmark and then have many levers for total return over time.
0: In terms of choosing between sectors, moving allocations from one area to another, as you were talking about when you were discussing spread versus yield, you know how is that playing out right now?
2: We've had the portfolios on a bit of a glide path, I would say, from an, a more aggressive stance. Uh, the last couple of years coming out of COVID, where there are a lot of opportunities in, in beaten up credit sectors, they've largely recovered. Uh, and now that we're getting near the end of an economic and credit cycle, uh, we're turning more cautious. We're building up the defensive allocation in the portfolios, which is namely treasuries, agency MBS, cash, that all yield um, you know, north of 5% given inverted curves right now. Um, And we think that that, again, gives us that optionality in the future.
0: And for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with the term carry, can you just explain what that is?
2: Sure. Yeah, carry just refers to the earned income on any investment. So essentially the coupon that you're clipping outside of any price appreciation in the bond price.
0: Great. So winding up here, Matt, as you look ahead, Are there any exogenous events that you're worrying about as it relates to your economic outlook?
1: Yeah, there's plenty to worry about. Uh, And I think these exogenous events become a bigger concern when the economy doesn't have a lot of spare capacity and when markets are not pricing in a, a whole lot of risk, both conditions that we have currently. Some of the risks that are top of mind would be banking stress, which has receded from the headlines, but the underlying drivers of that stress have not gone away. You know the default cycle really hasn't gotten going yet uh, there's more problems to come from commercial real estate in all likelihood so we could see more problems from banks pop up another underappreciated risk is china we're seeing signs of a sharp slowdown in growth there and policymakers seem very reluctant to provide the major stimulus we've come to expect from china given concerns about reflating the debt bubble there and with economic growth really taking a backseat to other concerns like national security so this big source of global demand that was supposed to be rebounding pretty sharply this year uh, is looking more and more shaky in China. And then one other you know, big risk we worry about is some kind of inflationary supply shock, which is not something markets are positioned for at all. But it could be a weather or geopolitical shock hitting commodity prices. Maybe it's a labor strike throwing renewed disruption into supply chains, which we narrowly averted a few of those over the last several months. Uh, but this is something that could come out of the blue and really shake the disinflation narrative. It's not in our base case. This is not something that you can really predict in advance, but it's a, it's a risk to worry about.
0: Evan, uh, before we let you go, what is a main takeaway that you
2: have for our listeners? So I think it's important to recognize that market performance doesn't necessarily translate to what's happening into the real economy and and vice versa. And what we try to do here at Guggenheim is take a long-term view for our clients. We take risk when we think it's warranted, but we also really want to protect investors when we think that they aren't being compensated and when a lot of these risks that Matt just outlined are elevated will turn the portfolios more defensive. But we think right now is a unique time where you can do both through generating high levels of carry that we think can attempt to beat the benchmark without taking meaningful credit risk, which we think is a really interesting time to uh, be invested in fixed income.
0: Thank you. And Matt, any final words that you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Yeah, I just want to thank all the listeners for tuning in. We really appreciate all the support, all the feedback, and all the questions we get. So thank you for everyone for listening.
0: Well, thank you again for your time, Matt and Evan, and please come again and visit with us soon. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, Jay. All right. Well, my thanks once again to Matt Bush and Evan Cerdensky for joining us today, and thanks to all of you who have joined us for our podcast. If you like what you are hearing, please rate us five stars. And if you have any questions for Matt, Evan, or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com. And we will do our best to answer them on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, such as Ann Walsh's new commentary, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long.
3: Important Notices and Disclosures Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds, and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. Structured credit, including asset-backed securities or ABS, mortgage-backed securities and CLOs are complex investments and not suitable for all investors. Investors in structured credit generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some structured credit investments may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and they're subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risks to investing in loans directly, including credit risk, interest rate risk, counterparty risk, and prepayment risk. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only, and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax, and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. This podcast contains opinions of the author or speaker, but not necessarily those of Guggenheim Partners or its subsidiaries. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates, and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of, nor liability for, decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.